The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, major sell-off on Wall Street as the Omicron variant takes a grip on global markets. Is the Santa Claus rally in jeopardy? Should you buy on this big drop? We'll debate that and how to protect your portfolio from here. Our investment committee today, Liz Young, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova, and John Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's get a check on the sell-off at this hour. Major averages on pace for a fifth negative day in six. Dow Jones Industrial Average down by one and three quarters percent. S&P 500 just a few points off of the session lows here. 1.6 percent is decline. NASDAQ is down 1.6 as well. The Russell 2000 really taking it on the chin 2.4. And here's the... Uh, Here's the linchpin here. The 10-year note below 1.4, Steve Weiss. The 10-year yield has been telling us that the markets are concerned about growth for a very long time, and here we have it below 1.4. What do you make of this all? Well, to me, it's very clear evidence that the market is most concerned about COVID and, and the variants and not that concerned about not not passing bill back better and not as concerned about the Fed in terms of raising rates, except for the fact and I'm going to modify that and modify import, importantly that the Fed is tightening monetary policy at the wrong time. So, yeah, so it's growth fears that are hitting everything and it's pretty indiscriminate. However, you know, I'm staying with my with my bond short because I think that this is just a moment in time in that. I haven't seen too many cycles, frankly. I'd be hard-pressed to recall any where, where you started a major rate increase cycle and, and yields went down. So, so it's, as I said, as I started saying, it's evidence of COVID being the number one factor in the market. Anything else is pure folly. Liz Young, what do you make of this sell-off? Well, first, if I'm understanding Steve correctly, he said the Fed is tightening at the wrong time. And I'd have to respectfully disagree in the face of huge no, inflation. Uh, excuse, I, Go ahead. I, I didn't say it, Liz. I'm sorry. I'm saying the perception of the market is that I think the Fed is latent tightening. So okay, I it. agree with got you it. on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think the issue here, Melissa, is that. We have uncertainty, obviously, heading into the end of the year. We keep asking ourselves, is the Santa Claus rally at risk? It's already not happening, right? The Santa Claus rally usually starts to take shape about mid-month. We're here on the 20th. There's no rally. I think that we could go lower from here. Maybe we rally into the end of the year, but that's going to have absolutely nothing to do with Santa Claus. It has everything to do with the idea that we have uncertainty over COVID and we have a Fed that isn't going to save us this time. And frankly, they shouldn't save us. They are tightening at the right time in the sense that the economy is still pretty strong, regardless of what the market is saying. The economy is doing okay. Inflation is hot. They have to control that in order for the economy to continue growing 
through 2022. So we need to get through some of this and always remember as investors, the market is going to bottom before the bad news peaks. So we're probably going to hear about a peak in cases. Things are going to relax. The market will bottom before that. Uh, and that's what Tom Lee says. Tom Lee of, of Fundstrat. If Omicron peaks in January, we think stocks will actually bottom in late December. This coincides well with the Fundstrat head of technical strategy, Mark Newton's view, that the tradable low will take place. He gives dates between December 22nd and December 24th. The bottom will be this week. Joe. Will the bottom be this way? If, if that is the case, and we can't pick bottoms, obviously, if we hey, could, Stephanie, then... Hey, Stephanie, I got... Yeah, go ahead. Okay, if, if we can't pick bottoms, do we just say, you know what, Joe, we're going to buy. We're going to use this as a buying opportunity, because longer term, we know that that will have been close to the bottom, at least. Melissa, good to see you. I, I, I struggle with a lot of these short-term calls. I think what is so uh, important and really missing at all times from these conversations, what's the most important word to all of us if we're investors, if we're speculators, short-term, long-term? It's the word risk. The word risk. It's the primary word in the financial services vocabulary, and it's one that's reshaping itself right now. Why? Risk is always present. And we are now coming off a 2021 that has the highest risk-adjusted return for investors in decades. You have low realized volatility, strong performance for the S&P. To Liz's point, now you have a pivot on the part of the Federal Reserve. The abundant liquidity, the oceans of liquidity, they're pulling back on that. And in that process, a lot of the riskier strategies whether it was allocating to hyper growth stocks or high valuation technology stocks or small caps that were correlated to this roaring 20s narrative that never actually unfolded. Risk is now being reshaped and it's being exchanged from weaker hands into stronger hands. And I think the right thing to ask yourself is, is this the onset of the bear market Absolutely not, in my opinion. Credit markets are trading fine today. This is a correction that is going to provide an opportunity, and that opportunity presents itself dependent upon where you sit on the risk curve. Are you one of those investors that's assumed way too much risk? Well, if you have, then you're going to need to do some selling. But if you're moderate in what your risk leverage is right now, you're able to sit back, and this will be an opportunity for you when the calendar rolls into 2022. John Najarian, I have a feeling that you've been very active today. So tell us, John, what you've been doing. Well, Melissa, I've been active for the last three days, I guess. I've been uh, converting stock positions into simulated long stock positions by getting into options. Just because the volatility uh, was cheap enough, Melissa, um, as you know, when volatilities get high, and they certainly pop today, um, we had readings north of 28 earlier today, um, but for the spot VIX, that is, Mel. Um, but when we uh, had the cheaper volatility last week, I thought it was prudent to get out of stocks, which I'd been doing for better part of two weeks, and getting into call spreads to simulate that same long exposure. So I was doing that in a host of stocks, everything from J.P. Morgan to Lululemon, um, to, uh, I think, Bank of New York. I can't remember all the different banks I did that with, Mel. But that just seemed like a prudent thing to do. Um, if vol gets high enough, 
And I don't really think that we're going to see too many days, Melissa, where we see um, Joe Manchin uh, shutting down Build Back Better, where we see uh, Davos being canceled and Omicron cases exploding in New York and other parts of the country all at the same time. I don't think we're going to see too many more days like this. So if we get that significant pop in volatility, Melissa, I'd be willing to get right back into these stocks and then sell those higher valued um, pumped up options against them. But that just wasn't the case for the last three or four trading days. It's been vol was too cheap, in my opinion, given what the headwinds were. So that's what I was doing, Mel. Yeah. Um, Steve, I want to bring you in and ask you whether or not you think or put much credence to this call from Tom Lee that we could see a bottom this week. Joe is giving us a lowdown on, on being where you are in the risk spectrum, which obviously is very important when making personal investment decisions. But Steve, overall, just from an overall market standpoint, do you think we will have seen the bottom? I mean, if the market is a forward looking indicator, right, and we discount news, then then, you know, maybe maybe we do bottom before an Omicron peak. You know, we could, but I think it's ridiculous to try and call bottoms number one. I think we can all agree on that. And then to call them to the day that you expect them to happen. Well, that's even more ridiculous. So I don't think that's helpful to anybody. I think it's great for getting your name out into the market and building your personal product portfolio. But I don't think it's very helpful anywhere. Look, if you take a longer term time frame, stocks are going to go up. They always go up. If you've got conviction, if the fundamentals are there and you're able to check on the fundamentals, and unfortunately most retail investors can't, but if you've got the valuation parameters and the fundamentals, then sure, step in and buy. If you're a short-term investor, there's plenty to worry about. We're in a perfect storm of issues for the investor. We've got the virus that's continuing to hit people. And while we may not see another day when Manchin decides to pull his vote, we may see days going forward where they shut down plants in Asia as they have with Delta, as they had with Alpha, and that's going to hit the marks. Now, I spoke to a tech company today and said they're not hearing any of that, but it doesn't take that long for you to hear it and then from them say, you know what, we're closing it down. Then inflation goes even higher, supply chain gets even more backed up. And I'm not seeing, through the companies I talk to, any easing of the supply chain whatsoever. Then you've also got, and I don't know if we're putting the chart up right now because I can't, can't see the screen. Oh, is this the scariest chart that you've ever charts. seen in the market? Is this the scariest chart? It is. Oh, I love this. Okay, it go, is. Ahead. So, go ahead. So it's, so it's up there. And, and what it shows is that in the last year, there have been more global inflows into equities than the last 19 years combined. A lot of that money came in in the last half year where we haven't had the returns. And a lot of it's gone into, as we've seen from the previous momentum stocks that now have downward momentum. Maybe those are just traders. Maybe they're paper hands or paper paws instead of diamond hands. So you've got to have reversion to the mean at some point. And if you start seeing, and I believe you're seeing it now, part of that trillion dollars that went to equities start to unwind, then you're only at the beginning of the decline. So look, so there's plenty of reason to wait until there's more stability, until we see how Omicron works its way through the system and if it does cause plant disclosures. So I'm frankly, I'm in cash. I've been in cash. I've been the most negative on the show in terms of the markets. I don't intend to put money into the market, except in very isolated instances that like a Skyworks last week, where you had the complete misinformation about Apple building their own 
RF chipsets. I mean, that was just ludicrous because they're not going to build fabs. So I bought some more Skyworks then. I had a full position, but I added to it for the bounce. So that's the only time really putting money to work. Otherwise, I'm happy to be patient. Furthermore, Melissa, I just don't see people putting on professional investors putting on major positions when they're going on vacation because money's already taken that vacation. It's coming out of the market. So they'll wait to the first of the year, and then I think they'll do it then when things start to settle down a little. Liz, maybe you have a, a better handle, um, the best handle on the panel, that is, uh, when it comes to the retail investor. And I'm wondering if you th- see that sort of bounce back. I mean, 2021, if we look back on this year, it will be for the increased activity of the retail investor um, among the top things, uh, top memorable things in 2021. And so are you a believer that the money that fl- that went into the markets, the flows that Stephen Weiss was talking about, that that could come out, that they are weak hands, that they won't wait for that bounce back? Well, look, generally speaking, retail investors are a little bit more emotional and they tend to have a knee-jerk reaction when things are fearful in the market. They also tend to have a lot more FOMO on the upside. What I think is going to happen here, though, is and is already happening, is that everybody was overweight tech coming into the fourth quarter of this year. Now we've gotten confirmation from the Fed that tech is probably going to be under a lot of pressure next year. And this isn't just about that newer retail investor. There's two different things I would say about this. The newer retail investor has never seen a monetary policy tightening cycle. So that's something that's gonna be new for them to learn about in 2022. The institutional or seasoned investor hasn't seen a tightening cycle with inflation this high and with tech as this big of a percentage of the index before. So this is new for everybody. And I think both retail investors and big institutional investors right now are right-sizing their tech exposure and their growth exposure. So that's what you're seeing as some of the pullback and part of the reason that growth has not held up despite the fact that rates have fallen, which as we know over the last 18 months, every time rates fall, you usually see a little rally in growth. That also tells me that this rotation will finally stick when we get into 2022. Money comes out of growth, goes back into cyclicals, things like financials, energy, and the retail investor is going to have to get comfortable with investing in those kinds of beta stocks instead of putting more and more money into tech. All right. uh, Let's get some more about the uh, economic growth outlook. It's getting increasingly cloudy here. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joins us with more on that. Steve, we were, we were talking at the top of the show about the meaning of the 10-year yield below 1.4%. It's not good. Yeah, I felt like I was at next month's FOMC meeting listening to Liz Young and Steve Weiss talk. Uh, the economic outlook and the right policy response, Melissa, from the Fed, complicated. You have another fast-spreading virus wave and the apparent failure or of Build Back Better all amid this still high inflation problem. Here's the challenges. The new virus spread threatens demand and supply. So you could have weak demand growth, but also supply cuts, which could boost inflation. Goldman, among others, cutting their forecast with the failure of Build Back Better and central banks pivoting just last week, hard in a lot of ways, to fighting inflation. And and Mills is right. Bond yields across the term structure have all fallen since the Fed meeting, with the biggest decline being a 13 basis point fall in the five-year yield. That's where a lot of business is done. The two and the five are up just a bit since Powell's pivot on November 30th. The 10-year remains down, presenting a problem for a Fed that wants to tighten things up and fight inflation. Krishna Guha writes, no response in financial conditions, quote, is potentially problematic for the Fed. On some horizon, the Fed will need to achieve less stimulative financial conditions. Luke Randall writes in ICAP, tells me 
The best basic point is that the less yields rise on the long end, the more the Fed will have to do on the short end. So the sell-off in stocks does tighten conditions somewhat, as did comments on Friday from Fed Governor Chris Waller. You remember, he said he wants every he wants the March meeting to be a live meeting for rate hikes. Here's the probabilities. March now priced at about 50%, which means there's a goodly, goodly debate in the markets right now. Let, more certainty about May and June for a rate hike. Second hike uh, in July being priced in and December for the third hike. Remains to be seen how this run of the virus works its way through the economy. If the big effects on supply, Melissa, it could worsen the inflation situation and give the Fed more work to do. That's interesting and and also very disturbing as we're hearing more and more reports out of China, for instance, that, you know, its factory centers in in Guangzhou, for instance, are starting to shut down. They started to do that last week. And so it it feels like there is more pain ahead. Um, In terms of March being a live meeting, is that Chris Waller specific or is there the feeling or the notion from other Fed members, uh, governors, et cetera, that that March could also be a live meeting? So it is Waller specific. Uh I think he was the only one who said March. Maybe Buller did as well. But you could certainly go back and listen to Powell and hear his answer to my question, other questions as well, and say that he, he very much wanted March to be the potential for a live meeting. The QE ends in February. So if you take Powell at his word and say we're going to end QE before we hike rates, February ending to it, and then March would be a lot, would potentially a live meeting depending upon what's going on with the economy. One thing somebody said to me, Melissa, is the Fed has some time here to figure all this out. It doesn't have to really make a call until March. If some of the uh, doctors we've had on our, on our air and the experts are right that this thing works its way through very quickly, we could be, it may be an easier a decision for them come March. Yeah, let's let's hope that is the case. Um, Joe, what's your take on this? Steve, good to see you. You know, I just have this feeling of, of sitting here three years ago uh, and experiencing a, a fall of 2018 where markets declined 20 percent. Investors like myself were clamoring, wanting Chairman Powell to communicate that he would reverse his policy. Uh, when you mention March, do you think ultimately investors will be in the position again where they're going to be dependent upon where is the S&P 500. If the S&P 500 is unfortunately down through the end of February, let's call it 10 percent, how can the chairman ultimately act? Isn't he in the same situation that he was three years ago? Did you say down 10 percent, Joe, or down 20 percent on the S&P? Let's go with down 10 percent, Steve. Yeah, I think 10% is maybe within the realm of possibilities, but I think the more important number and the issue you did not have in 2018 is the inflation number. If we're still at, you know, 5% core, 7% headline year over year, I think the Fed's going to still be looking at an inflation problem and still see a need to try to uh, move to tighten financial conditions. It'll see the, the, the market being down as a part of that. Um, and so in, in that sense, that's sort of along the lines of what the Fed wants to do. I think it would much rather accomplish it through the bond market. But, you know, financial conditions are financial conditions. High stock prices are loose financial conditions, as are low bond yields. Steve, you asked Joe if he meant 10 or 20 percent. Do you think in the Fed's collective mind that there is a, a pain threshold at which point they, they determine policy or policy is affected? I, I think there's a wormhole <laughs> that that a stock market decline passes pa- that that it passes through, uh-huh. where it becomes a systematic 
financial economic issue I for agree. the Federal Reserve. I don't think per se there's a level there where it's yeah. like, oh, 12 is too much, 30 is too much. I think they look at the broad spectrum of how uh, uh, high stock prices feed into GDP, how high stock prices or a decline in stock prices feeds into financial stability, and that could cause them to act. I don't think there's a single metric. I think it's a matter of how you get there. I mean, if you dribble down 20% in an orderly way over the course of several months, I don't think it's a concern for the Federal Reserve. If you get there tomorrow morning, uh, you know, knock on wood, I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, that's an issue for the Federal Reserve because it creates financial dislocation throughout the system. Yeah, Wells Fargo had a really interesting stat. 22% of household wealth is tied directly to equity. So I, I completely agree on that wormhole analogy, yeah. Steve. It's always good to talk with you. Thank you. Steve Leesman. All right, let's get to energy here. It's down more than 10% from recent highs. Jim Cramer's charitable trust is buying on this weekend uh, weakness, snapping up more shares of Chevron. Um, Joe, you like that call? I, I, I do. I like uh, the large cap energy producers here. Uh, personally, I have an ownership of Pioneer Natural Resources. Uh, crude oil is a very volatile commodity, Melissa. As you know, um, the challenge right now is do I have to worry about supply? Do I have to worry about demand? It's 15 percent in either direction. So I think you want to trade up very high. Make sure you have the quality of the balance sheet, which Chevron uh, clearly does. Pioneer Naturals, another name that does as well. Uh, I think you've got to be careful here. I would not be allocating towards some of the high beta energy plays that earlier in this year uh, certainly rewarded speculators. Yeah, John, you agree? Well, Mel, um, I, I agree with Jim that I would be buying here on that dip. Um, I think any pop in uh, uh, natural gas, for instance, would come because of a colder Europe and or colder United States, in particular, of course, eastern United States. Um, I think it puts additional demand on home heating oil as well as natural gas. And I think that the demand is clearly there, Mel. Now, some of it has been uh, speculated away, not taken away, but speculated away because of the Omicron, because of uh, what just happened with Davos being postponed until June and so forth. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're actually buying less of it. It's just an anticipation that if this continued, we might be buying less energy. I don't think that's going to be the case, Mel. So I agree with Jim. I would be buying energy on this dip. It'd be one of my favorite areas of the market. All right. Uh, let's now get to financials here. The worst sector of the day today. Not entirely a surprise given what we're seeing with yields. Um, Liz, can you get behind financials here? Do you think that they trade as a group or do you think you can stock pick in this kind of market when they just sell wholesale an entire sector? Yeah, I think these are macro driven moves right now. And I've been behind financials for most of 2021. I would stay behind financials. And I think as you look into next year, I would hope I actually wrote a piece in the last couple of weeks that was titled All I Want for Christmas is a Steeper Yield Curve. I would hope that that comes true. I might get it for Valentine's Day and not for Christmas. But that should be a tailwind to financials. I still think that they have a good opportunity into 2022. And look all the way down the market cap spectrum. It's not just these big cap names. Look into small cap financials. Look at regional banks, which is a lot of in the mid cap space because they're exposed to the consumer and exposed to that net interest margin. I'm sorry to hear that the one thing that Liz wants won't actually happen. <laughs> chances are it won't. I mean, there's still a few more days, but it chances are. Steve Weiss, do you think Liz gets it by Valentine's Day? Because we've been waiting 
uh, for a while. And, and given what the Fed has said, what the Fed rhetoric has been in, in recent weeks, we don't have a steeper yield curve. I, I hope she does, and I hope she gets it before. Look, we're seeing the 10-year yield is almost flat in a day after trading down rather significantly for, for a sovereign. So I think it's a great time to buy financials. And, and, you know, listening to the Chevron conversation, I mean, that stock is down barely from the highs. And financials are down barely from the highs, maybe each 10%. But this, I have greater confidence in that it will continue to rise because the economy is strong. You'll see loan growth continuing to increase. But yes, the Fed, as you pointed out, as Steve pointed out, they're going to continue to raise rates and the curve is going to continue to steepen or re-steepen, I should say. So to me, it's a great opportunity to buy financials here. Hmm. And you like Bank of America among them. Um, Bank of America, speaking of, released its outlook for 2022. Chris Heisey is the chief investment officer at Maryland Bank of America Private Bank. He joins us now. Chris, great to speak with you. Um, looking out to 2022, you're expecting a market grind out. What, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, it's, it sounds like a big caveat, right? A, a market that grinds itself higher, but coming off the extraordinary gains from 2020 and 21, you know, I'm, I'm particularly in Liz and Joe's camp here where almost back to the basics again, you have to take a position on earnings growth and profit growth from our perspective should be better than expected. Consensus is, is out there with a 7 or 8% move. But when you look at some of the trends, particularly consumer spending, despite the growth worries we're all talking about right now, when we look back on all this and we go to the summer of next year and we look back on this, we think this is an opportunity to reposition portfolios. Joe talked about repricing risk. This is actually natural. It's coming at a time of year which it typically doesn't happen because of the so-called Santa Claus rally, but we typically don't have variants we're talking about in, in normal markets. So the growth worries, the growth shock that's being repriced right now, we think we would fade that. We think growth is actually going to be better than expected, uh, despite the, the latest worries. We also think the Fed, as Steve said, is going to try to do this in a balanced way. Obviously, they're going to try to thread the needle. But when we say a grinded out market, this is going to sound like it's not a new financial term. But uh, instead of just a bull market, uh, we, we see a we see a decent uptrend, relatively speaking, particularly since fixed income is an area that should remain under pressure, despite the flattening we've seen recently. Uh, as, as, as Liz said, the steepening yield curve, we have to be patient. It'll work itself through, in our opinion. And last but not least, this repricing of risk. Think about high quality. Think about a buffalo type of market which is uh, a less attractive bull, if you will. <laughs> Poor buffaloes. I hope they're not watching. Uh, they're going to get their feelings hurt. Um, does that include a call uh, on big caps over small caps, which we've seen get pretty hammered? I mean, people were getting all bulled up on small caps for a while. They ran up, and, and now they're – look at them now. Yeah. When you, have, when you have big macro risk, or at least that's what's being repriced in, you get liquidation, and the market's kind of in a corner right now. They tend to, it's a knee-jerk reaction. So you sell your winners. There's liquidation of the high momentum, what we call big story, little profit areas. We think that that's still going to be under pressure. But when you start to go into this so-called repricing of growth higher, in our opinion, next quarter, even if the Fed removes some of the liquidity, we still see small caps playing catch-up. We see cyclicals playing 10-year, decade-long catch-ups. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, high-quality cyclicals, i.e. financials, some parts of energy, some parts of materials and industrials, we think is the sweet spot when this macro repricing of risk happens. And small caps, 
a decade-long repricing to the upside relative to large. So we're, we're overweight small caps relative to large. Chris, good to see you. Thank you. Chris Heisey. Thank you. Meantime, we're all over this market sell-off. Up next, shares of Tesla and Lucid taking a big hit today. Are investors overestimating growth prospects for EVs? We'll debate that in our call of the day. Halftime's back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier. Because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion. Helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Frank Holland. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Ghislaine Maxwell was called a dangerous and sophisticated predator by prosecutors during closing arguments at her trial in New York. Maxwell is accused of setting up young women to be sexually abused by financier Jeffrey Epstein. Her lawyers say she's being made a scapegoat following Epstein's suicide in August of 2019. Jurors in the Elizabeth Holmes trial are beginning their first full day of deliberations. Following three months of testimony, Holmes is accused of 11 counts of fraud and conspiracy in the failure of her blood testing company, Theranos. And former President Donald Trump is suing New York State Attorney General Letitia James in an attempt to stop her investigation into his real estate business. The former president says the inquiry violates his constitutional rights. James is investigating whether financial fraud was committed in the valuation of various properties. We'll have the latest on all three of those legal developments tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. That begins at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And the White House is making an additional 20,000 guest worker visas available ahead of the winter hiring season. It's an effort to deal with worker shortages in areas like construction, landscaping and hotels. That's the very latest. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Frank, thank you. Guggenheim initiating coverage of the EV space today with neutral ratings on both Tesla and Lucid. The firm saying it has positive long term view, but says the whole electric vehicle industry could have slower growth than many are expecting. Um, Joe, you've got uh, Tesla in your ETF, don't you? I do. What's remarkable is we've seen this staggering decline for Tesla. I'm looking at the chart right now. November 4th, 1243 was the high. Guess what, Melissa? It's still above its 100-day moving average. So it's maintaining the strength of its technical formation. Uh, I think overall, once you get past a lot of the tax selling that's unfolding, uh, specifically related to Tesla, I think on the other side of that, 
And once you hear from earnings, it's a company that you want to reestablish a position in if you have gotten out or initiate a position if you don't hold one at all. If we are to believe that the whole EV space isn't going to grow as, as fast as had been forecasted, Steve, I'm curious if you think um, Ford, for instance, may not deserve where it's trading at right now. Yeah, that's a great question on Ford. And they do have, uh, I was on their site looking at a, at a Bronco and six-month wait. However, when I take a look at where it's trading, it's trading at the upper end of its range. and There's only so much they can do. So I think Ford is, is fairly valued, personally. And I think Tesla is likely fairly valued also. Look, the bear case on Tesla, in addition to all the other ones for a while, and I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk, was that competition. And the only thing you can say about those, that bear case was that it was too early. Now we are seeing that competition. And Tesla hasn't changed the look of their vehicles since inception. So you can have these new cars come out that look a lot better, a lot sleeker, et cetera, and competition's coming from everywhere. So it's unnatural and it's wrong to assume their growth's going to continue and that it could support this valuation. I just don't believe that'll be the case. Yeah. Um, John, you own some of these EV names. Mm-hmm. I do, Mel. Uh, Fisker, Lucid, Tesla. You take a look at uh, where they were two months ago, Mel. It's one of those situations where you zoom out just a little bit, and they're all still higher than where they were two months ago. Did they peak, like, for instance, Fisker, from 20 to 55 in two months? Um, it, was that an all-time peak? I don't believe so. Um, I, that was Lucid, actually. I'm sorry, Mel. Uh, Fisker I, I was a different level. Um, but I think all of these stocks are still going to be accumulated. And Steve, you know how I respect your opinion. Um, and I know you love uh, Volkswagen, and I think they'll sell a lot of those EVs. But they won't make nearly the same amount of money on those, Steve, um, that Tesla makes on theirs. Because look at the price they're selling those Volkswagens or Porsches, different story, of course, high luxury vehicle, versus the Teslas. Tesla is able to make a lot more money on the sale of those, and they don't have the legacy costs. They don't have all those costs uh, for pension and the legacy issues with factories that many of those other competitors that you're rightly calling them competitors, they are competitors, but they have significant dealer networks and everything else that cuts into their profitability dramatically. Weiss, what do you say? But there's also a wide, there's a wide range between seven times earnings and 100 times earnings. So I think would 50 times earnings mm -hmm. be the right for Tesla? Could be. And by the way, consumers <laughs> like having those dealers where they can go and take their car in and have it fixed. And that's why Tesla's putting more out. Look, I think they can, uh, you know, I think so many could be winners in the group. And true, you're not going to have the same profitability by car that Tesla has. But that's why Volkswagen's going to overtake Tesla as the number one EV seller, as they already are in Europe. All right. Well, part of the peaking that we saw in EVs could be Build Back Better and the promise of it. Let's bring in CNBC auto reporter Phil Lebeau on what this major setback for Build Back Better means for the EV space. Phil. Melissa, it means no juice in the near term. Yeah. Remember, part of the Build Back Better plan was for expanded EV incentives, and that would have meant an additional 12500 for union-built uh, EVs. So you're talking about Ford and GM. They would have benefited from that, and ultimately Stellantis. So near term, the feeling is when you talk with analysts, when you talk with people in the industry, 
we may not see the juice that we were originally expecting, let's say, six months ago or nine months ago. Uh, we may not see that over the next couple of years. Longer term, uh, the, lim- the impact is going to be limited because the commitments are already being made. Take a look at Tesla. This is a perfect example. Their sales are growing at a, at a great clip right now. And on top of that, they've got two gigafactories that are about to open, one in Texas, one in Germany. You put those two together, you're going to see greater sales there. As for GM and Ford, yes, they're both ramping up their production right now. Now, the lack of greater incentives may mean that they don't have quite as many sales over the next six months to a couple of years as they start to sell things like the F-150 Lightning. And then finally, you have to look at the startups. We're talking about Rivian. We're talking about Fisker, Lucid. They would have benefited from greater incentives being offered as it is right now. They're still eligible for the federal tax credit of $7,500, but that's far different than what the Build Back Better plan uh, was promising. So near term, Melissa, the, the impact is no juice for those sales. Longer term, not a whole lot of impact. That's a really good point, Phil, because a, a lot of people had made the case for Tesla that when that $7,500 tax credit it went away, that their sales would be hit. We didn't really see that. No, we did not. Yeah. We did not. And, and that's the question. Will GM notice any impact? It's not eligible. Right. Will there be an impact when they have the e-Silverado coming out? They've got the Hummer now. Deliveries have begun. Uh, I don't think that anybody is factory in that you're going to see a huge impact there. All right, Phil, good to see you. Thank you, Phil Lebeau. Uh, Liz, this is a favorite sector of the retail trader. Um, what happens with this in, in this environment where interest rates are expected to rise? I, I think it stays a favorite sector of the retail trader. Mm-hmm. And also to Steve's point, as competition increases, that's good for the consumer. That's good for industry. And I think as we move through the next couple years, first of all, this theme isn't going anywhere. We're still going to have a transition to electric vehicles. We're still going to have concerns over climate change. And this appetite is only going to grow in the consumer space and in the investor space. Build Back Better isn't going to stop anybody from making new electric vehicles. So yes, this is a a minor impediment in the short term. I think over the long term, it's still a place I'd want to be. I would do it in a diverse way, though, as competition picks up, I wouldn't be trying to pick that one horse that's going to win. All right. Up next, do not miss John Nigerian's latest trades and unusual activity. Halftime's back right after this. Investment in the clean transportation sector is going to accelerate next year, according to analysts at J.P. Morgan. The firm expects rapid growth in 2022 as COVID-related supply chain constraints ease and the sector benefits from strong ESG fund inflows. Among its top picks in the space, Plug Power, Blade Urban Air, High Zone Motors, and EVgo. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. 
Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Let's take a check on this market sell-off, which uh, does seem to be stabilizing a bit, if that's the right word. We've got all 11 sectors on the S&P 500 in the red. Financial seeing the most damage down by 2.7 percent. Consumer staples uh, on the upper left there um, seeing the least damage down just a half a percent. As for the S&P 500, we're just about... Nine points, eight points off the session lows, down by one and three quarters percent. The Nasdaq composite down by one point nine percent. Time for some unusual activity. Uh, John, what are you watching? Well, Mel, um, and I love the optimism you started that with. With uh, we're bouncing at least a little, or maybe stabilizing. Um, Bed Bath and Beyond, BBBY, Mel. Uh, this is one that investors had hoped uh, would be also stabilizing, but instead. We see a big put buyer coming in. They buy 5,000 or more of the January 15 puts. Um, That was with the stock at about 1520. It has since lost the 15 handle mel and traded down into the 14s. So um, in the long term, I like the stock mel because we all kind of think that maybe the board is going to have to let this one go, meaning somebody steps in and buys it. But in the short term, between now and those January expirations, I think the stock could plumb lower. A lot of the meme stocks have been under big pressure, starting with AMC, but then GameStop. But it hasn't stopped there, and this is one of those stocks. Second one, Mel, is also a put trade. It's on the uh, IYR. And this one, they were buying the December of uh, this month, the 31st, so the last trading day of the year. They're buying the 108 puts with the stock at about 109.55 this morning. They bought a lot of those puts very quickly in one big block mail, and they've been adding to it since. So this is the likes of Crown Castle. I wouldn't worry about that or American Tower. But I do worry about some of the other REITs that are part of the IYR mail. So that's why I bought puts in this one. And to the uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, I bought them there. But I'm ready to pull the trigger and buy that stock on a significant dip. All right. Well, John mentioned retail. Um, we got Nike earnings on deck this after the bell today and also retail stocks. We've been watching them. They've been sliding over 8 percent in a month. How the committee is playing this space. We got that next on Halftime. Nike shares having their worst day since early November as the company gets ready to report earnings after the bell. Weiss is making some moves in the retail space. Target, you're getting rid of some. Why? Well, I sold half my target, and I hope Pete Nigerian's not listening because I don't need that guy that size coming after me. But, look, they're going to have down earnings next year. And if you, I was looking at one analyst report, and actually it's true of other analysts, where the earnings in EBITDA are going to be flat, essentially, for the next three years. So the question is, is the market going to continue to pay 
for the stock where it is. The made decision so far, given the 15 percent decline in the shares, that's not going to. I think we're close to the bottom. In terms of Dick's Sporting Goods, they came out and announced a big buyback last week, adding $2 billion to it. And that's also supposedly going to have down earnings next year, which I don't believe. The difference between the two is, and why I didn't sell Dick's, is because they've got sort of a lock on that market. And I'm looking for Nike to report a good quarter and talk about maybe good future sales. And then I think that you'll see uh, you'll see Dick's pop off that news because they're such an important customer. And they announced a recent partnership, which I think is great for Dick's and points out their superiority in the space. Liz, but that's the real mm-hmm. issue with retail, Mel. Yeah. If the earnings is going to be down, will the stocks hold up? Even right, right. They are? Yeah. Uh, Liz, you're pretty pessimistic, it sounds like, uh, on retail. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at the data that we got about Black Friday and Cyber Monday, it doesn't bode well for the retail data that I would expect to come out in January about December. So I think the retail space is going to see some weakness here for a few months. And if Steve's right and the rest of the sector sees flat to down earnings in 2022, it's something that I'd be staying away from. All right. The committee is ready to answer your questions amid the sell-off. Next, an Ask Halftime. Back into Time for Ask Halftime. Nicholas Anthony tweets, is today's slide an opportunity or taste of more weakness, specifically in the SPY or any of the other ETFs for us that are not stock pickers? Uh, Joe, what do you tell Nicholas? Well, I want to go specifically towards biopharma. You would have had $100 billion in price reductions for Medicare programs and the Build Back Better program. Uh, now, obviously, that, that headwind is not going to be present so anything healthcare oriented, XLV, you could go uh, XBI, uh, given the relief that we're seeing here uh, on the back of, of uh, Build Back Better not coming to fruition. John, your take? Um, Mel, I would be watching um, the airlines and cruise stocks in particular, uh, the airlines through Jets ETF, because it's just been cranked to the downside as these airlines are hemorrhaging because, like I said, business travelers are not back. But I think that could bottom in January. So that would be a, an area that I'd look for in January, Mel. Yeah. And Liz, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. This is an opportunity in spaces like uh, financials. It's an opportunity in spaces like healthcare. I would dip your toes in. I'm not going to call the bottom on a certain day. I think there's more weakness that could still come, but more of an opportunity than a taste of something terrible on the horizon. All right. We got your final trades next on the Halftime Report. Checking the markets here. Losses pretty steady here. S&P 500 down about seven points off the session lows. We're down by 1.8 percent. Still, Nasdaq is down by 1.9 percent. One stock that is topping the tape today, Carnival shares. They're higher by more than 2 percent. The company uh, forecasting a return to profitability by the second half of next fiscal year. Dr. J, you own some of this. Yeah, own Carnival, Mel, and I'm as surprised as anybody, happy, but surprised as anybody that the stocks like uh, Royal Caribbean, NCLH, and Carnival have all bounced pretty significantly during this session, Mel. They were slammed on the opening, as were the airlines. Airlines were down about 3% today, Mel. Most of those are back into the black already. So, as you say, uh, stabilization in the broad S&P, but... Wow, we're seeing a pretty nice bounce back in some of these travel-related names. Yeah. All right. Final trade time here. Liz, what do you say? 
I probably spoiled this one already, but I say financials. If I get my wish that the yield curve steepens, it's a great time to get in. Steve Weiss. Short the TLT, yields will go up. I'm with Liz. Joe T. AbbVie, one of my favorite healthcare names right now. Dr. J. Discovery, media play over 50 countries, Mel, D-I-S-C-A. All right, and we leave you here with the uh, S&P 500 down by 82 points. We'll, of course, be watching the markets for you throughout the day. That does it for us here on the Halftime Report. Meantime, the exchange with Kelly Evans begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.